Good morning. Uh, eventually, we're going to wind up in Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, we'll want to read verses 31 to the end. Um, as you know, we've been uh, coming up to this uh, paragraph that has to do with the marriage relationship, and uh, the very first thing we're going to look at is wives be submissive to your husbands. And what you've noticed is that I've been delaying that. Last week, we just camped out on, well, be submissive to one another and, and tried to develop the fact that um, as a follower of Christ, as a disciple of Jesus, we are actually um, to be living lives that submit ourselves to the will of God and the glory of God in our relationships with everybody. And so there's, there's a general sense in which we're all submissive. So that, that, that was last week. And this week now, uh, we're there. there. There's the verse. Submit to your... Your, your husbands and um, I decided not to do that uh, <laughs> and it's not out of fear it was out of no it was out of <laughs> no Debbie told me not to that's what it was yeah. but anyway but what I'd like to do this morning is look at the end of the paragraph because it's when Paul gets to the end of the paragraph after he has talked about Wives being submissive because of the relationship of Christ in the church. And he says, husbands, love your wives. Why? Because of the relationship of Christ in the church. And it's at the end of that where Paul links that together with marriage. And that's what we're going to look at uh, today is really more the foundation for Christian marriage, for a biblical understanding of what a marriage uh, ought to be. Um, it's a, a sort of a challenging kind of thing, uh, mostly because... I suspect most of us already uh, know what it says, and if we don't know what it says, we don't really care, uh, but, uh, but one of the things that is a hindrance for us in learning what the Bible says to our lives is that we think we already know what it means. Uh, I remind you that when Jesus came, he was incarnate, came to earth, dwelt among us, uh, the Son of God incarnate, um, that one of the reasons that people did not see him for who he is is because they already knew who he was in their minds. The Pharisees, for example, the very religious people, and they were um, expecting the Messiah. They were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. They knew what the Messiah would be like. They had that knowledge. They knew that when Messiah came, he would be uh, clothed in robes and a crown and he'd have a scepter and a sword and... Um, he would be just majestic and, and glorious, and all the people would say, wow, you Jews were right all along. We're so sorry that we're Gentiles, and, and he would vindicate the Jews. They knew what Messiah would be like. And so when Jesus came, and he came as somebody who had no place to lay his head, he, he came as somebody who was just an itinerant preacher. He came as somebody who looked like everybody else in, uh, among the people. The Pharisees missed him. When Jesus, instead of coming with a scepter and a sword, came with a towel and a basin, they didn't understand that. And so they did not see Jesus because they already knew who the Messiah should be. A lot of times we already have our minds made up. But the real question is, is the Bible the Word of God or not? 
mean, that, that's really the question. When we read things in the Bible that go against our grain, that, that don't quite match up to the things that we want to be true, when, when the Bible challenges us, the question is, is it the Word of God or not? Oh, yes, the Bible is the Word of God. It's absolutely, except for this paragraph. This paragraph has some stuff that, that I'm really not keen on, and so that's not quite as much the Word of God as the rest of the Bible. But, uh, yeah, Word of God, but not this part. But, you know, once you start picking and choosing, you say, I want this part of the Bible and not that part of the Bible, then the whole Bible just becomes a collection of suggestions and helpful hints on how to get through life. If it's the Word of God and it has authority, then every part of it is the Word of God, and every part of it has authority over our lives. You know, there's a lot of things the Bible says that goes against our grain naturally. Uh, let me mention just two of them real quick. One of them is, um, all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, for those of us who are believers here, that, that, that is a truth that we understand. But, you know, in, in, in our natural estate, apart from Christ, all, all of us are sinners falling short of the glory of God. What do you mean? I'm not, I'm not a sinner. I, I do some things that aren't really great, but I'm not a sinner. And we don't like to be told that we are sinners. And so it goes against our grain. And, and a lot of people choose to, well, let's just leave that out. It's bad for your self-image. It's bad for, for a healthy sort of, uh, of the psychology within yourself. And so we, we want to leave that out. But when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see the truth of that scripture, we are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. And you come to understand that it's only when I understand that I am a sinner that I can come to Christ on the cross. That it's only by way of the confession of my sin that I can know the glory of God's forgiveness. Then the truth opens up vistas of understanding and then we, we're, we're looking at the world in an entirely different way. You, you get this. So, you know, the, the Bible has things in it. Now I'm going to get personal because most of you, uh, most of us, I, I should say, uh, they, you know, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. They, well, that, you know, we've, we've come to accommodate with that. But let, let me give you the verse that, uh, that we don't like and that we pretty much leave out of this Word of God category. And that's the one that says, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. Uh-oh. You're talking about money. All you ever talk about is money. This is the first time I've talked about it in how long? It's been a while. I mean, at least grab me that. But all you ever want is money. You, you just want it. You're thinking about money. Talking about money, money, money. When that's what you're doing in your life? You think about how much of your time you spend trying to acquire and hang on to money. But the Bible says, bring the tithe into the storehouse. See if God won't bless you. And we explain that away. It's not word of God. That's Old Testament. We're, we're free from the law. Happy condition. Um, you know, we're, we're in New Testament. We're grace. We're not law. And so tithing, we don't have to tithe. No, you, you know. But once you understand what God is saying, he's saying, I want to set you free from your possessions. I want to get you out of the rat race where you think you have to have stuff in order to be a worthwhile human being. I want to set you free from having so much money in your pockets that it's pulling you under and you're drowning. Once you understand that the tithe is for our blessing, then you start to see things differently. You start to understand that, you know, everybody I know who tithes has plenty of money. It really is true. Because when God calls you to tithe, just set aside a regular offering, a, a portion of, your, of, your, of, of the fruit, of, of, the, of the increase, 
You set aside a part of that and you bring it to the storehouse. You bring it to the body of Christ. You, you invest it in, in kingdom work. And once you're doing that, then you start to see the remainder differently. You start to see yourself as a steward, not as an owner. And then certain principles start to kick in. Things like, well, maybe we should save a little bit. Maybe we should live beneath our means. Maybe we don't have to keep up with the Joneses. Maybe we really can budget. See, a lot of things kick in. Once that Bible verse that goes against our nature, once we realize that God gives it to us for our blessing and our welfare, then a whole vista of things opens up. And so when we're reading in this this paragraph, and we'll get to it next week, but things like husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church, and wives, be submissive to your husbands. And we start reading that and start to understand that this isn't given so that we can have an organizational chart and a hierarchy of power in the marriage, but rather it's given to us so that we might be blessed and we might benefit from what God designs marriage to be. So that's what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at that foundation, that, that purpose of God uh, in marriage, right? Debbie said amen, and that's all that counts. And she said amen again. Third time's a charm, Deb. Wait a minute, we're, we're Christians. We don't believe in charms, okay? All right, but let's read Ephesians chapter 5. Start at verse 31. Verse 31 is a quotation from the book of Genesis, by the way. Therefore a man shall leave his mother, his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her Let's bow together in prayer. Father, you are kind and gracious. You have created us for your glory. And you have brought forth life in our midst. Yet we live in a world, and especially in our society, that, that does not believe in the sanctity of life, but rather views some people as inconvenient, that views our own sense of control and happiness as being more important than the littlest lives. And so we live in a world that celebrates abortion. Father, how it must grieve you. And so we pray that we would have our eyes fixed upon you, the author of life, and our lives committed to what you are committed to, the sanctity and the holiness of life that belongs to you. And Father, that we would give ourselves at every turn and opportunity to the task of setting forth your plan for life and the way that we should value and honor the least among us and the littlest ones among us. Father, we pray that we ever honor and glorify you in the name of Jesus. Oh, it must have been about 30, not quite 35 years ago that I got a phone call from a man that I knew uh, and uh, he said, look, my parents have been married for 50 years. I said, oh, that's great. He said, uh, and we're here at the celebration. We're celebrating their 50th anniversary party. And I thought, and you didn't invite me. 
then the, he, he said, but as we were talking, we thought it would be great if mom and dad exchanged their vows, if they renewed their vows after 50 years of marriage. A little tear came to my eye. I said, oh, yes, I'd love to, to help out. And I said, well, could you come over right now and help them renew their vows? I said, sure. So I went to the bookshelf and I grabbed my wedding book. I have two books. They're identical, but one I use for weddings and one I use for funerals. And when I mix them up, but anyway, so I got the wedding book. It has the wedding ceremony in it. I always use the traditional uh, wedding ceremony. And uh, so I got there and and, uh, there was the, the, the couple and she was standing next to him. He was so sick that he was sitting in the chair, could barely talk an oxygen bottle next to him. He was taking oxygen there. And of course, we didn't have any time to converse, just, hey, how are you? Nice, privileged to be here. And we'll exchange traditional vows. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. That's all, that's all we got to say. And so uh, I started in and of course started with her and I said, repeat after me, I so-and-so take thee, my lawfully wedded husband. And, and of course, she's, I, I give her a few words and she repeats them back. We got to the part where it said, uh, you know, to, for better, for worse, for better, for worse, richer, for poor, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, in sickness and in health. To love, to love, to cherish, to cherish, and to obey. <laughs> I thought she didn't hear me. Big mistake, I repeated it. And to obey. <laughs> If looks could have killed. Oh. And, and, and so I finally I just went on and said, you know, and until death us do part, which is pretty quick, you know, but <laughs> until death us do part. And, and seriously, the, the man actually died uh, within two weeks, two or three weeks he, he passed away. And I got to thinking about that. I thought, you know, after 50 years of marriage, what would it hurt <laughs> to say you'll obey a man who's so sick he's not going to give you any orders anyway? But it, it was something, you know, I, obviously I don't know the details of marriage. I don't know exactly what happened and, 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 and so forth. But what I can tell you, there's a lot of, a lot of, of folks for whom the, um, the, the, the idea of, of vowing, pledging to obey somebody else just runs against the grain. It's not just the women. It's, it, you know, the guys, we, we don't like to, to pledge obedience to people. And so her understanding of that term, her understanding of what it meant to be obedient as a wife was filled with, with so much baggage around it that she couldn't bring herself even to entertain the concept and so before we get to something related, which is submission, not exactly the same as obeying, but we get to the idea of submission and in the home and then the husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. Before we get that, I want for us to have a moment where maybe we can clear some of the excess baggage from our understanding of things and try to see what the Bible really says about marriage and what God designs for marriage and what the real foundation for marriage is. And very quickly, we move to the end of the paragraph in Ephesians 5 that we've been looking at. And we look at verse 31, and there Paul is, is quoting from Genesis, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave, cling, hang on to, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This comes from Genesis chapter 2. 
I'll just very quickly review the, the events there. God creates Adam, places him in the garden. Adam is there to tend to God's creation. And uh, uh, God looks at Adam and he says, you know, this, this really isn't good. This man can't make it by himself. He'll, he'll be totally lost without a woman to tell him what to do. So it's in the Hebrew, trust me. And so, um, and so they go looking for what, what the old King James calls a help meet for Adam. A lot of people think that's one word. They think it's help meet. It's two words. It's a help, someone who helps, who is meet, and that's an old, old English word. It means equal to, suited for, fitted for. In other words, somebody who's on the same plane and the same level. You know, the animals couldn't be the helpers. Had to be somebody on the same level as Adam. Oh, well, what about that word helper? God is our helper. Oh, God, our help in ages past. Our hope for years to come. See, there's nothing wrong with being a helper. If, God, if God's okay with being a helper, there's nothing wrong with being a helper. And so God creates the woman to be a helper suitable for and eye-to-eye on level with the man. And he brings them together. And when Adam sees the woman, he says in the original Hebrew, wow, this is it at last. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And so he calls her Isha because she was made from Ish. Calls her woman because she was made from the man. And then the, the scripture in Genesis 2 says this. It says, for this reason, why? Because God created marriage. For this reason, what? Because God intended that husband and wife be together. Not just physically, but together in their mind and their heart. Together in their work. Together in their purpose. Together in bringing honor and glory to God. Together in stewardship of His they are to be together. And therefore, this, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father. My mother-in-law used to point out, nowhere does it say that the wife has to leave her mother and father. But that's another argument for another day. But, uh, uh, but he shall leave his mother and father and, and cling to, cleave unto, uh, King James, uh, he, uh, hold fast to, just hold on to her. And the two shall become one flesh. It doesn't say, and the two shall become a hierarchy of top-down relationship. It doesn't say, and the two shall become a, a situation in which you've got an organizational chart and, and, and I've, I've got the right and privilege to come and to tell you you're outside your boundaries and you need to go and, and, and rectify that. It says, the two shall become one flesh. They'll get together for their whole life experience. The two shall become one. And so God is the creator of marriage. He's the one who defines marriage, and he is ultimately the purpose of marriage. Why was Adam created? For the glory of God. Why was Eve created? For the glory of God. Why were they brought together for the glory of God? Why were they married to one another by God's design? For the glory of God. That's what marriage is about. It's all about the glory of God. Now, we have corrupted marriage. 
mean, ever, ever since the fall, one of the first things that happened uh, after Adam and Eve sinned was that the marriage relationship got a lot of a lot of pressure on it, and a lot of breakage was going on there. But we very quickly uh, uh, distorted the, and corrupted the marriage relationship. And so marriage, uh, very quickly, even in the pages of the Old Testament, turns into a contractual business deal in which one man can, can sort of pawn off his daughter on another man and get something in return. Or in the case of Laban, he can pawn off one daughter, promising the other daughter, and, and get a twofer so that he can, he can unload two for one. You know, so the, uh, uh, it, it became very much a contractual business arrangement, and this has continued throughout human history. It's, it's alive and well in some cultures today. The idea that the woman is just the property of the man, that she's this, this uh, lesser sort of being that has to be regulated according to a, almost a business-like arrangement. God's intention for marriage was distorted as men starting taking multiple wives for each other. Again, uh, uh, even, even today you find that in places where, where guys can afford it. Uh, but um, but the, the, the thing being that, that even in the Old Testament, you find the marriage relation, even, even some of the best of marriages, Abraham and Sarah. What a beautiful story. And yet it was distorted with Hagar at Sarah's invitation and Abraham's uh, acquiescence. And the story of, of Jacob and Rachel, what a beautiful story that is, but distorted as Laban the father um, uh, distorted that by, by in, injecting Leah into that. And, and then you get all this, this uh, interplay of, of competing wives and, and rivalry and, and, and stress and strain on the marriage. The marriage relationship has been distorted because of our sin. And so when the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, uh, what are the grounds for divorce? We, we just want to know. We've got some Bible verses here we want to argue about. But what are the grounds for divorce? This is not a, a sermon on divorce. But what I want you to understand is when Jesus answered the question, he said this. He said, because of the hardness of your heart, because you are not in touch with who God is, Moses allowed for divorce. And he gave you a mechanism to take care of it. But he said, it wasn't that way from the beginning. Because from the beginning, God created the man and the woman and he brought them together and the two became one, one flesh. And then he says, and so what God has joined together, God's design for marriage, what God has put together, let no man put asunder and tear apart. So Jesus went back to the beginning as well. And that's what Paul is doing. Now we're back in Ephesians chapter 5. And that's what Paul is doing. After this paragraph in which he says, wives, be uh, submissive to your husbands because of the relationship of the church to Christ. And husbands, love your wives. Why? Because of the relationship of Christ to the church. And then he says, but when you think about that, I'm, I'm talking about marriage. And marriage says the two become one flesh. And then in verse 32, he says, you know, this is a profound mystery. Marriage is a profound mystery. A few years ago, I went through a little exercise where I asked several of the men I knew about their wives. I said, do you know your wife? Yeah, I know my wife. And I'd ask them, do you know your wife? And they'd think about it and they'd say, no, I really don't. I said, is she a mystery to you? And they would say, yes, she's a mystery to me. And for some reason, when I asked the women the same question, I'd say, do you know your husband? Yeah, I know your husband. Do you really know your husband? No, I really don't understand him. Is he a mystery to you? They'd say, no, he's more like a problem. 
And I wish I were making that up, but, but that's, that's what happened. Most women thought their husbands were problems. Men thought their wives were mysteries. So um, take that for, for what it's worth. But the marriage relationship is a mystery in and of, of itself. How two people can be brought together and live their lives together and, and raise a family and children together. That is a mystery. It is a deep, profound mystery. And that's where most of the fun comes from. It's the mystery of marriage. But Paul says it this way. He says, this is a profound mystery. So the relationship of husband and wife is a mystery. And then he says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The union of Christ and his church is a mystery. How God would love us so much that he would send his son, that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we never die, but rather we have everlasting life. And out of that faith in Christ for our salvation, we are brought and made one with him in union with Christ. There are some things you can't understand, but there are some things that God does that you just rejoice in the experience of it. And the relationship of Christ and the church, the union that we have with Christ, it is a mystery. How he would use frail and fractured and broken and weak and stumbling and failing people such as we are, and yet he uses us for his glory and brings us into his kingdom. That too is a mystery. And it is a mystery that God chose marriage to proclaim the mystery of Christ in the church. God decided that when um, believers are married to one another, the way in which they interact with one another is designed to be a sermon in action pointing the world to the deeper, more profound mystery of Christ and his church. So now what we have is we have... Um, the marriage designed by God, instituted for his glory. And when we get married, there's a lot of reasons to get married. And we won't go into all of them, but the biggest reason to get married is so that God would be honored and glorified and that he would be praised. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to folks who, you know, some of you are at the, at the uh, back end of the marriage uh, uh, journey, you know, you've, you've raised the kids, you've gotten out of the house, and, and now you're taking care of the grandkids, uh, and uh, you're having fun with that. And, um, but, you, you, you know, you've sort of been in it for a while. There, there's other folks here just starting out. And you're just starting to discover that, you know, marriage is not like a big, long date, and someday, you know, it'll, but rather there's something deeper and more profound going on there. I, I, I really want to be talking to folks who are very young, and you're not married, you're just thinking about it and trying to understand what it'll mean to fall in love with somebody and what, that, what marriage would mean. Because when we get it straight in our minds that the ultimate purpose of marriage is the glory of God in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, it transforms everything. Not everybody wants to think about that. Not everybody wants to go along with that because that, that, that will have a certain things that happen the, we've got the rest of the paragraph to go back and to pick up, and some of those things are going to grate against our nature. But when you understand that everything there is designed to show us how God is glorified in Christ in our marriages, then you start to understand this, this isn't just power grab by, by, uh, you know, by some author. This is rather the display of God's will for us in the home. 
You see, marriages have to be about something. They have to be about something. In fact, every marriage to be successful really needs to be about something bigger than itself. For a lot of people, they, they get married, and uh, the first thing that the marriage is about is just having fun. You know, and I'm all for that. Then after a while, their marriage is about the kids. And that lasts, you know, until they're out of the house, the age of 26, <laughs> 30 or 40, you know, whatever it was. But, you know, the, the marriage is about the kids. But then once the kids are out of the house, what's the marriage about? There's usually a little gap there before the grandchildren come along and you don't know what to do with each other because your marriage was, was about the kids and the kids are gone. But when your marriage is about the Lord Jesus Christ, when it's about the glory of God in Christ, then your marriage always has a purpose. You know, and as you work through all the things that, that human beings have to do when they, when they share a life together, you know, the problems, the arguments, the, the going, the back and the forth, you know, all those things as you're working those out, they have a purpose and a reason. And it is so that the Father in heaven would receive praise, honor, and glory in our marriages. And so this morning, whether you're, you're married, you're thinking about marriage, you're close to marriage, you just started marriage, maybe you're coming at the, at the, at the uh, concluding years of marriage, understand this, that the rock upon which marriage is founded is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And everything else we're going to say is based on that truth. We're married on the rock for the sake of Jesus Christ. Okay? Let's bow together in prayer. And Father in heaven, we do thank you for sending us your word and giving us the insight into who we are by telling us who you are and giving us the power and the ability to, to live lives that are obedient and honoring to you. I pray now your Holy Spirit would just inhabit every, every heart here that whether in our own homes or whether in supporting the homes of others and the marriages of people around us, Father, that we would be committed to your plan, your design, and your purpose for marriage. Father, I ask it all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.